Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. about fake IDs, identity politics, and identity theft, when it comes to the idea of identity, I think most of us have a story to say. It's something that we think about often. We often think about what defines me. How do we identify ourselves? Are we, are we defined by a role that we have? I'm a mom, and so that's kind of my identity. Are we defined by a job that I have? I work in sales. Are we defined by something else, by an interest we have? Right? There's, there's a thousand jokes about different people who are very interested in something, and, you know, the CrossFitter and, the, you know, and all this walks into the bar, who's going to tell you first, right? That's, those are easy jokes to make. And those are jokes that are based on this idea of how do we identify ourselves. And so what happens is we often identify ourselves by groups that we are a part of. And that's the reason why we love to belong. If we have a group that we belong to, it's an easy way for us to identify ourselves. These groups that we long to belong to give us identity. But the thing is, belonging to groups is great for us as long as they don't cost us too much. I'm very interested in belonging to a group so long as it doesn't cost me anything. Now, some groups that we think about, right, affinity groups that we want to belong to, they do have a cost involved, right? The country club charges you to be a part of the country club. The CrossFit gym charges you to be a part of the CrossFit gym. If you like to hang out in certain places, if you're a movie buff, you've got to pay for the movie. So I'm not talking about that sort of cost. I'm talking about something else, because whatever the group that we sort of identify with, whatever the group that sort of we want to believe that we belong to is, while they all have a cost, none of them are high. If you want to join the country club, you probably, if if that's the scene you want to be a part of, you probably have the money to join that country club. If if you wanna if you wanna join the CrossFit gym, you you can find enough quarters to join the CrossFit gym. Or find a cheap, cheaper one. If you want to be a part of a mommy group, while, while having a child is incredibly difficult, once you've done it, the bar to clear to join a mommy group is pretty low. In fact, you've already cleared it, right? See, all of these things are good, right? There's nothing wrong with the country club. That's fine. Nothing wrong with a cross... Not a lot wrong with the CrossFit gym. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the mommy group. My, mom, my, my wife needs one. But all of these things are ways that we try to belong. They're all ways that we try to identify ourselves. And what happens is these affinity groups, these people that we hang out with because we have something in common with, those groups are cheap imitations of real community. I remember as a child, um, my mom used to ask, you know, hey, I'm going to the store. 
Is there anything you would like? And I can remember as a 10-year-old saying, yes, Mom, I, I, want, I want either Mountain Dew or Dr. Pepper. Bring me back a Mountain Dew or a Dr. Pepper. And inevitably, my mom would bring me back one of two things. Mountain Lightning or Dr. Publix. <laughs> and and I, would, I would be aghast. Your teenage, Mom, Mom, why are you getting me these things? This is what you ask for. No, I ask for Mountain Dew. She points at the hyper-color green soda. It probably explains why I am the way I am. And she points at it and goes, that's the same thing. Right? What do we all know? Dr. Publix and Mountain Lightning are not Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper. They're not even in the same category. They are way off. They're cheap imitations of the real thing. Our affinity groups are cheap imitations of real community. We long for real community, but we settle for the imitation. I really could use a Mountain Dew. But I'm thirsty, so I'll just take a Mountain Lightning. It'll be fine. I guess that'll be all right. And the reason that we do this is because community, because new identity, because things like this are costly. See, if you want to have real community, it's going to cost you something. If you want to have a real new identity, it is going to cost you something. If you want the imitation, you can get it cheap. All it'll cost you is the money. All it'll cost you is a little bit of your time to go to the gym. All it will cost you is whatever the price of admission to your affinity group is. But if you want real community, it's going to cost you something more. So one of the ways that we see this work out is that we are content for church to be something nice that we do once a week. Well, let's be honest, something that we do once every few weeks, we're content with it being just that. But what we're slow to do is to see the church as the foundation of our new identity and see the church as the primary means of our new community. And Peter which is what we've gotten back to now after we took our sort of break for the seven deadly sins as we took our break for Easter. Now we're back to our regularly scheduled program as we are working our way through the book of Peter. And Peter is going to sum up all of what he's talked about, about what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we live out this faith? He's going to sort of summarize and transition in the verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3. So I'd like it if you would please stand and listen as I read First Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days. And keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep his tongue from evil. And his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. See, we see church as just another affinity group and not as something that is fundamental to our identity and to who we are as a culture. We think church is just an add-on. And even those of us who are Christians sometimes experience this. Some of us who are Christians think, ah, yes, I have a relationship with Jesus, but, you know, the church is not so much my thing. I love what uh, St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said, no man can say that he has God as his father if he does not have the church as his mother. That the way that God created us is to be a part of the body of Christ. For that to be fundamental to our identity and fundamental to the way that we have community. And I will show you how that works out in this passage. Peter begins by sort of this rapid fire list of of what it looks like to be a Christian. How the Christian life should be working itself out in our hearts. He gives these five things. The first thing he says is that it's, that it's unity of mind. Because the church is based on our faith in Jesus Christ. We all have the same starting point. Right? That's, what's, that's what causes conflict right, in affinity groups. Think about your mommy group. right? Think about mops. Or think about whatever group you're a part of where you sort of spend time together. If you're all coming from different backgrounds, how hard is it to make decisions? Even simple ones, right? But part of what we have as the church and part of the way that we are to operate as the church is we all have a unity around the gospel. So that as we consider anything, as we consider how we are to approach one another, we are all starting from foundationally the same place. That makes the church a little bit different. And not only that, not only do we have this foundational agreement, but this foundational agreement is based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. The unity that we have as the church is not fundamentally how good we can do unity. The unity that we have as a church is foundationally and fundamentally built on who Jesus is. And the same goes through for the next thing that he says. He says that we have, we have sympathy, that we have emotional unity, that we weep with those who weep, that we laugh with those who laugh. You see, most of us are content for our relationships, especially our church relationships, to just be casual and cavalier. When's the last time that you had a genuine emotional conversation with somebody who you weren't married to or dating? We don't do that much anymore. And the church is a place where we fundamentally have emotional unity, sympathy with one another. That we are to be people whose identity is not just based on our sympathy with one another, not just based on the unity that we have, but it's also based on brotherly love. And it's very easy for us to get stuck on the love part of brotherly love and not the, not the family language of that. Because right? if, if somebody calls you brother or calls you sister at church or anywhere else, that feels a little bit strange, doesn't it? Right? That feels a little bit like, like down home, you know, old school, 
white church out in the country with the white steeple and the white clabbered sides. Like, that's the people that call each other brother. Or maybe if your reference is different, it sounds like a wrestler, right? Maybe it's Hulk Hogan, brother. But we've lost this idea that we are able to connect with one another and that the love that we share as the church for one another is genuine family love. And so we skip over the brotherly part and just say, yeah, yeah, I love them. But do you? See, we have a foundational unity. We have sympathy. We are connected by a brotherly love. And the thing about that family relationships is they cost us something. Think, think about your brothers and sisters. Or if you're an only child like me, think about brothers and sisters that you have seen in the world around you. It costs something to stay in a family, doesn't it? You have to bear burdens. You have to work through things. You have to be willing to carry one another's burdens. And most of us aren't willing to pay that cost. But Peter goes on. He's kind of rifling through all this and says, none of that. But we're to be uh, tender-hearted. This is sort of sympathy ratcheted up to another level. This is gut-level empathy. And not only are we to have that, but he finishes by saying that we have humble minds, putting others first. You see, here's the thing. As we think about all of these things, the unity, the sympathy, the tenderheartedness, the brotherly love, all of these are fundamental to our identity as Christians. This is who we are made to be as the church. And most of us hear that. And most of us sort of shy away from that. Because if you're listening, you hear the cost of Christian family. And that's why we like our affinity groups. Because they're cheap and easy. But the church is more fundamental, more foundational to who we are, so that our identity as the body of Christ supersedes all of our affinity groups, all of our occupational cohorts, and sometimes even our blood family. We, church, are an uncommon family who God is binding together. You see, one of the interesting things about most of our affinity groups is they're pretty much siloed into our social economic classes, aren't they? I made the joke about country club, right? And some people nodded their heads and some people kind of shrugged and rolled their eyes, right? Why? Because there's a a certain demographic that's a part of a country club. Let's be honest, right? There's a certain demographic that's a part of CrossFit gym. There's a certain demographic that is a part of mommy groups, right? All of these things. Whether it's now you get together with other salespeople from around the city, guess what? they're probably going to look a lot like you. They're probably going to have the same educational backgrounds just like you because they all make the same amount of money. Just all of these things are based on something else and they tend to divide us. The church of Jesus Christ is bigger than that. It's an uncommon family that cuts across race and class. It's an uncommon family that is filled with sinners who are working through the gospel together with one another. And this is foundational to our identity of who we are. This is also why... Church online isn't church. It's not. Because you know what online church doesn't have? The body of Christ. 
Does that mean if you're sick and you can't make it to church, I'm saying you should never watch something online? Am I saying if you, if you miss a sermon, you should never listen to a podcast? No, our church has a podcast. But that's not church. It's not the same thing. And the same goes for parachurch ministries, for other things surrounding the church. Those aren't the same thing as the body of Christ. Guess what? What does online church, parachurch organizations, and our affinity groups have in common? They don't cost us anything. And if we're going to have real, genuine community with one another, it's going to cost you. And so it's not just that he has given us new identity. It's not just that he's making us into a new, uncommon family. But this new, uncommon family has a different culture. After Peter describes who we are as the church, how we are to act, he goes another step further and says, and oh, by the way, when someone does evil to you, when someone hurts you, don't hurt them back. When someone reviles you, when someone says all sorts of terrible things about you, you're to not respond by reviling back at them. But then he goes on and says, in fact, you are called to call down blessings on them. That is absolutely countercultural, counterintuitive, counter-everything. We are called to be the sort of people who do not retaliate when we're hurt. We are called to be the sort of people who do not wish harm on others when they have harmed us. We are called to be the kind of people who do not manipulate situations so that others feel bad because we felt bad. And so many of those things are things that we do regularly, intuitively, and reflexively. Somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. Or maybe we sub in this sort of quasi-wisdom sounding thing. Fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? You get one. You fool me, right? I'll let you have it. But if you do it again, I'm coming after you. Right? It's as if Jesus said to his disciples, oh, you should forgive. And they said, oh, how many times? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And we're like, what if we divided that by 490, Jesus? How about, and we begin to negotiate. How many times do I absolutely try to justify ways to retaliate against someone in my heart? How many times do I say, yeah, I know Jesus says, to pray for your enemies, and to bless those who curse you, but, but surely he couldn't have meant this sort of person, right? I know Jesus said that, but, but surely, let me see if I can find some exceptions to that rule. Let, let, I mean, do, do you know what this person did? Surely not that. And I am so quick, I am so fast to try to point out the sins of others and then justify my own sin. But Jesus says, no, we are to be the kind of people that bless those who harm us, both with our words and with our nonverbal word. What would it look like for you if the next time somebody hurt you, instead of retaliating, for you to pick up the tab on their dinner? 
Some, some of you just visibly shook your head. No, I'm not doing it. And, and, and why? Because, no. Right? I earned that money. They hurt me. I'm not spending my earned money on those people who hurt me. Except here's the thing, that's what Jesus calls us to. You know, it would be easy uh, for us to take this and, and make it a little bit less. Because let's be honest, a lot of people get mad and, and get turned off by the Bible's sexual ethic, or what the Bible has to say about, about gender, or what the Bible has to say about race, or any of these sort of culturally hot-button issues that we have right now. And they go, I don't like what the Bible has to say about that. Fine. You don't like what the Bible has to say about that? What you should really be concerned about is this. Because it's a lot easier to follow a sexual ethic than it is to love those who harm you and bless those who hurt you and persecute you. Because this is different than any other religion. Right? There are some religions that say, look, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Somebody hurts you, just have measured and equal force and go back at it. Right? Don't be over the top. Eye for an eye, not eye for the head. But as long as you sort of stay within those bounds, retaliate as you would like. Or you even have, this, is, this goes beyond even the sort, of, the sort of Buddhist sense of Zen, right? What, is, what does Buddhism teach us? When, when we are struggling, when somebody harms us, that we are to ignore it. That we are to rise above it by not letting it bother us. And see, this is where most of us Christians stop. Most of us Christians are functionally Buddhist when it comes to others harming us. Right? Because I'm just going to not, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be okay. That person harmed me, I just won't talk to them and I'll be the better person. But Christianity is calling us to something more, something more difficult, something bigger. Christianity is calling us not just to ignore those who hurt us. Not just to rise above it, but rather to call down blessings on those who harm us. That's tough. That's really hard. And so what happens is, we want to skip to the last part of the passage I read. We want to skip down to the Psalm 34 part, because, because that bar, the, the loving those who hurt you, the blessing those who harm you, part of this passage, we'd go, no, 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 let's just get down to the, let's just get down to the Psalm stuff, the nice David song, and, and, and let's just reduce Christianity to just being nice. Right? That's, that's what we want to do. Because that's a much, much easier bar to clear, isn't it? It's not, just be nice isn't that hard. Like, like maybe when somebody's rolling into us, it's, no, no, no. We want to reduce it down to something less. But Christianity is asking us, to be far more radical than just being nice. Because blessing those who harm us, loving those who hurt us, is something you can't grit your teeth and do. At least not for very long. It takes real transforming grace to love those who harm us. It takes real transforming grace to bless those who hurt us. And the funny thing is, even when we lower the bar to just be nice, 
We can't even clear that, can we? If we lowered the bar of Christian ethics to simply be, just be nice, how many of us could go a week and just be nice to everybody? We can't even, when we, when we try to ignore what the Bible says and lower the bar so that we can clear it, what inevitably happens is we're like a terrible YouTube video of fails that my kids like to watch, right? Where, where somebody lowers the bar so that they can clear it, and then what happens? They can't. And we're the same way. Because this passage doesn't teach us just be nice teaches us to love others in a self-sacrificial way. And then it ends by reminding us of God's wrath, that God is against you if you don't bless those who persecute you and love those who hurt you. And we hear that, that could be a little bit shocking. But this passage is ultimately not just about who we are and how we are to live out the Christian life. Because this passage paints us a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. As we think through the five characteristics that he mentioned at the beginning, the unity of mind, the sympathy, the brotherly love, the tenderheartedness, and the humble mind. Almost had it. As we think about those things, what? Who is that ultimately describing, if not Jesus himself? Who is the one who literally blessed those who harmed him? What did Jesus do on the cross? Who did Jesus pray for on the cross? The people who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is not just Jesus being nice, is it? That is Jesus loving those who are harming him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is Jesus actively praying for his enemy, for those who are hurting him in that moment? And so we see in this story, in this, not just this story, but in this passage, that we are pointed to Jesus as the one who is ultimately connected with God. You see, Jesus obtained a blessing on the cross. And that blessing that Jesus obtained was us. Jesus dies for people who can't keep it together. Jesus dies for people who can't love others the way that he loves. Jesus dies for people who can't even clear the bar of just be nice. Jesus dies for you And for me, people who find our identity and our community in all sorts of other places, but the ways that he has set it up. And so, as we think about this passage, God's eyes and ears are on us because of Jesus' righteousness, not because of my righteousness. God hears my prayers not because of how well I have identified with his church, not because of how well I have done the five things listed in this passage, not because of how well I have been a part of his community. Jesus hears our prayers because of the cross. Jesus hears our prayers because of God's righteousness. Freely given to us by faith. 
even when we don't deserve it, even though we could never pay it back. And that sort of righteousness, that sort of grace given to us is the transforming kind. Because when we realize how deeply in need of it we are, when we think back and think about the ways that we wouldn't even cover the the tab of the person who we don't like, when we think about how badly we fail at so many parts of this, but then see Jesus coming back to us, arms wide open, reminding us of his love and his faithfulness, that sort of love transforms us. That sort of love and grace creates an uncommon family bound together by that message. It creates and teaches us how to love those who hurt us. Because in Jesus, we were the ones who hurt him. And so we see his love for us. And it transforms us. Let's pray.